0: Part 2. Chapter 2. Section 1. Of Some Do Not. By Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 2. Chapter 1. Section 1. Sylvia Teachins rose from her end of the lunch table and swayed along it, carrying her plate. She still wore her hair in bandeau and her skirts as long as she possibly could, She didn't, she said, with her height, intend to be taken for a girl guide. She hadn't, in complexion, in figure, or in the languor of her gestures, aged by a minute. You couldn't discover in the skin of her face any deadness, in her eyes the shade more of fatigue than she intended to express, but she had purposely increased her air of scornful insolence. That was because she felt that her hold over men increased to the measure of her coldness. Someone she knew had once said of a dangerous woman that when she entered the room every woman kept her husband on the leash. It was Sylvia's pleasure to think that before she went out of that room all the women in it realised with mortification that they needn't. For if coolly and distinctly she had said on entering nothing doing as barmaids will to the enterprising she couldn't more plainly have conveyed to the other women that she had no use for their treasured rubbish. Once, on the edge of a cliff in Yorkshire, where the moors came above the sea, during one of the tiresome shoots that are there the fashion, a man had bidden her observe the demeanour of the herring gulls below. They were dashing from rock to rock on the cliff face, screaming, with none of the dignity of gulls. Some of them even let fall the herrings that they had caught, and she saw the pieces of silver dropping into the blue motion. The man told her to look up, High, circling and continuing for a long time to circle, illuminated by the sunlight below like a pale flame against the sky, was a bird. The man told her that that was some sort of fish-eagle or hawk. Its normal habit was to chase the gulls, which, in their terror, would drop their booty of herrings, whereupon the eagle would catch the fish before it struck the water. At the moment the eagle was not on duty but the gulls were just as terrified as if it had been. Sylvia stayed for a long time watching the convolutions of the eagle. It pleased her to see that, though nothing threatened the gulls, yet they screamed and dropped their herrings. The whole affair reminded her of herself in her relationship to the ordinary women of the barnyard. Not that there was a breath of scandal against herself, that she very well knew, And it was her preoccupation, just as turning down nice men, the really nice men of commerce, was her hobby. She practised every kind of turning down on these creatures, the really nice ones, with the kitchener moustaches, the seal's brown eyes, the honest thrilling voices, the clipped words, the straight backs and the admirable records, as long as you didn't inquire too closely. Once in the early days of the great struggle, a young man, she had smiled at him in mistake for someone more trustable, had followed in a taxi, hard on her motor, and flushed with wine, glory, and the firm conviction that all women in that lurid carnival had become common property, had burst into her door from the public stairs. She had overtopped him by the forehead and before a few minutes were up, she seemed to him to have become ten foot high with a gift of words that scorched his backbone and the voice of a frozen marble statue, a sure-fire effect. He had come in like a stallion, red-eyed, and all his legs off the ground. He went down the stairs like a half-drowned rat, with dim eyes and looking really wet for some reason or other yet she hadn't really told him more than the way one should behave to the wives of one's brother officers then actually in the line, a point of view that, with her intimates, she daily agreed was pure bosh. But it must have seemed to him like the voice of his mother, when his mother had been much younger, of course, speaking from paradise, and his conscience had contrived the rest of his general wetness. however, had been melodrama and war stuff at that, it hadn't therefore interested her. She preferred to inflict deeper and more quiet pains. She could, she flattered herself, tell the amount of impressment which a man would develop about herself at the first glance, the amount and the quality too. And from not vouchsafing a look at all, or a look of the barest and most incurious to some poor devil who even on introduction couldn't conceal his desires, to letting, after dinner, a measured glance travel from the right foot of a late-dinner-partner, diagonally up the ironed fold of the right trouser to the watch-pocket, diagonally still across the shirt-front, pausing at the stud and so, rather more quickly, away over the left shoulder, while the poor fellow stood appalled with his dinner going wrong, From the milder note to the more pronounced, she ran the whole gamut of turnings down. The poor fellows next day would change their bootmakers, their sock merchants, their tailors, the designers of their dress studs and shirts. They would sigh even to change the cut of their faces, communing seriously with their after-breakfast mirrors. But they knew in their hearts that calamity came from the fact that she hadn't deigned to look into their eyes. Perhaps hadn't dared was the right word. Sylvia herself would have cordially acknowledged that it might have been. She knew that, like her intimates, all the Elizabeths, Alexes and Lady Moiras of the smooth-papered, be-photographed weekly journals, she was man-mad. It was the condition, indeed, of their intimacy as of their eligibilities for reproduction on hot-pressed paper. They went about in bands with, as it were, a cornfield of feather bowers floating above them, though to be sure no one wore feather bowers. They shortened their hairs and their skirts and flattened, as far as possible, their chest developments, which does give, oh, you know, a certain... They adopted demeanours as like as possible, and yet how unlike to those of waitresses in tea shops frequented by city men. And one reads in police court reports of raids what those are. Probably they were, in action, as respectable as any body of women, more respectable, probably, than the great middle class of before the war, and certainly spotless by comparison with their own upper servants, whose morals, merely as recorded in the divorce court statistics that she had from teachings, would put to shame even those of Welsh or lowland Scotch villages. Her mother was accustomed to say that she was sure her butler would get to heaven, simply because the recording angel, being an angel, and as such delicately minded, wouldn't have the face to put down, much less read out, the least venial of Morgan's offences. And, sceptical as she was by nature, Sylvia Teachins didn't really even believe in the capacity for immoralities of her friends. She didn't believe that any one of them was seriously what the French would call maîtresse en titre of any particular man. Passion wasn't at least their strong suit. They left that to more, or to less, august circles. The Duke of A and all the little A's might be the children of the morose and passion-stricken Duke of B, instead of the still more morose but less passionate late Duke of A. Mr. c the tory statesman and late foreign minister might equally be the father of all the children of the tory lord chancellor e the whig front benches the gloomy and disagreeable russells and Cavendishes, trading off these again french collages serieux against the matrimonial divagations of their own lord f and mr g but those amorous of heavily titled and born front benches were rather of august politics the hot-pressed weekly journals never got hold of them. The parties to them didn't, for one thing, photograph well, being old, ugliish, and terribly badly dressed. They were matter rather for the memoirs of the indiscreet, already written but not to see the light for fifty years. The affairs of her own set, female front benches of one side or other as they were, were more tenuous. If they ever came to heads their affairs, they had rather the nature of promiscuity, and took place at the country houses where bells rang at five in the morning. Sylvia had heard of such country houses, but she didn't know of any. She imagined that they might be the baronial halls of such barons of the crown as had patronymics ending in Shen, Stein, and Baum. There were getting to be a good many of these, but Sylvia did not visit them she had in her that much of the papist. Certain of her more brilliant girlfriends certainly made very sudden marriages, but the averages of those were not markedly higher than in the case of the daughters of doctors, solicitors, the clergy, the lord mayors, and common councilmen. They were the product usually of the more informal type of dance, of inexperience and champagne, of champagne of unaccustomed strength, or of champagne taken in unusual circumstances, fasting as often as not. They were, these hasty marriages, hardly ever the result of either passion or temperamental lewdness. In her own case, years ago now, she had certainly been taken advantage of after champagne by a married man called Drake. A bit of a brute, she acknowledged him now to be. But after the event, passion had developed, intense on her side, and quite intense enough on his. When, in a scare that had been as much her mother's as her own, she had led Tichens on and married him in Paris to be out of the way, though it was fortunate that the English Catholic Church of the Avenue Hoche had been the scene of her mother's marriage also, thus establishing a precedent and an ostensible reason, there had been dreadful scenes right up to the very night of the marriage. She had hardly to close her eyes in order to see the Paris hotel bedroom the distorted face of Drake, who was mad with grief and jealousy against a background of white things, flowers and the like, sent in overnight for the wedding. She knew that she had been very near death. She had wanted death. And even now she had only to see the name of Drake in the paper, The mother's influence with the pompous front bencher of the upper house, her cousin had put Drake in the way of colonial promotions that were recorded in gazettes. Nay, she had only involuntarily to think of that night, and she would stop dead, speaking or walking, drive her nails into her palms, and groan slightly. She had to invent a chronic stitch in her heart to account for this groan, which ended in a mumble and seemed to herself to degrade her. The miserable memory would come, ghostlike at any time, anywhere. She would see Drake's face, dark against the white things. She would feel the thin nightgown lipping off her shoulder, but most of all she would seem, in darkness that excluded the light of any room in which she might be, to be transfused by the mental agony that there she had felt, the longing for the brute who had mangled her, the dreadful pain of the mind. The odd thing was that the sight of Drake himself, whom she had seen several times since the outbreak of the war, left her completely without emotion. She had no aversion, but no longing for him. She had, nevertheless, longing, but she knew it was longing merely to experience again that dreadful feeling, and not with Drake her turnings down then of the really nice men if it were a sport was a sport not without a spice of danger she imagined that after a success she must feel much of the exhilaration that men told her they felt after bringing off a clean right and left and no doubt she felt some of the emotions that the same young men felt when they were out shooting with beginners Her personal chastity she now cherished much as she cherished her personal cleanliness, and persevered in her Swedish exercises after her baths, before an open window, her rides afterwards, and her long nights of dancing, which she would pursue in any room that was decently ventilated. Indeed, the two sides of life were, in her mind, intimately connected. She kept herself attractive by her skilfully selected exercises and cleanlinesses, And the same fatigues, healthful as they were, kept her in the mood for chastity of life. She had done so ever since her return to her husband, and this not because of any attachment to her husband or to virtue as such, as because she had made the pact with herself out of caprice and meant to keep it. She had to have men at her feet. That was, as it were, the price of her, purely social, daily bread, as it was the price of the daily bread of her intimates. She was, and had been for many years, absolutely continent. And so very likely were, and had been, all her Moiras and Meggs and Lady Marjorie's, but she was perfectly aware that they had to have, above their assemblies as it were, a light vapour of the airs and habits of the brothel. The public demanded that a light vapour, like the slight traces of steam that she had seen glutinously adhering to the top of the water in the crocodile houses of the zoo. It was indeed the price, and she was aware that she had been lucky. Not many of the hastily married young women of her set really kept their heads above water in her set. For a season you would read that Lady Marjorie and Captain Hunt, after a presentation at court on the occasion of her marriage, were to be seen at Roehampton, at Goodwood and the like. Photographs of the young couple, striding along with the palings of the Row behind them, would appear for a month or so. Then the records of their fashionable doings would transfer themselves to the lists of the attendants and attaches of distant viceregal courts in tropics bad for the complexion. And then no more of he and she as Sylvia put it. In her case, it hadn't been so bad, but it had been nearish. She had had the advantage of being an only daughter of a very rich woman. Her husband wasn't just any Captain Hunt to stick on a vice-regal staff. He was in a first-class office, and when Angelique wrote notes on the young menard as she could, Angelique's ideas of these things being hazy, always refer to the husband as the future Lord Chancellor or Ambassador to Vienna and their little, frightfully expensive establishment, to which her mother, who had lived with them, had very handsomely contributed, had floated them over the first dangerous two years. They had entertained like mad, and two much-canvassed scandals had had their beginnings in Sylvia's small drawing-room. She had been quite established when she had gone off with Perone. And coming back had not been so difficult. She had expected it would be, but it hadn't. Teachins had stipulated for large rooms in Gray's Inn. That hadn't seemed to her to be reasonable, but she imagined that he wanted to be near his friend, and though she had no gratitude to Teachins for taking her back, and nothing but repulsion from the idea of living in his house as they were making a bargain, she owed it to herself to be fair. She had never swindled a railway company, dutiable scent past a customs house, or represented to a second-hand dealer that her clothes were less worn than they were, though with her prestige she could actually have done this. It was fair that Teechan should live where he wished, and lived where they did, their very tall windows looking straight into those of McMaster across the Georgian quadrangle. They had two floors of a great building, and that gave them a great deal of space, The breakfast-room, in which during the war they also lunched, was an immense room, completely lined with books that were nearly all calf-backed, with an immense mirror over an immense carved yellow-and-white marble mantelpiece, and three windows that, in their great height, with the spideriness of their divisions and their old bulging glass, some of the panes were faintly violet in age, gave to the room an eighteenth-century distinction. It suited, she admitted, teachings who was an eighteenth-century figure of the Dr. Johnson type, the only eighteenth-century type of which she knew, except for that of the beau-something who wore white satin and ruffles, went to Bath and must have been indescribably tiresome. Above, she had a great white drawing-room, with fixings that she knew were eighteenth-century and to be respected. For teachings, again, she admitted, had a marvellous gift for old furniture, he despised it as such, but he knew it down to the ground. Once, when her friend Lady Moira had been deploring the expense of having her new little house furnished from top to toe under the advice of Sir John Robertson the specialist the Moiras had sold Arlington Street stock lock and barrel to some American, Teachins, who had come in to tea and had been listening without speaking, had said, with the soft good nature, rather sentimental in tone, that once in a blue moon he would bestow on her prettiest friends. You had better let me do it for you. Taking a look round Sylvia's great drawing-room, with the white panels, the Chinese lacquer screens, the red lacquer and ormolu cabinets, and the immense blue and pink carpet and Sylvia knew that if only for the three panels by a fellow called Fragonard, bought just before Fragonard's, had been boomed by the late king, her drawing-room was something remarkable. Lady Moira had said to teachings, rather flutteringly and almost with the voice with which she began one of her affairs, Oh, if only you would! He had done it, and he had done it for a quarter of the estimate of Sir John Robertson. He had done it without effort, as if with a roll or two of his elephantine shoulders, for he seemed to know what was in every dealer's and auctioneer's catalogue by looking at the green halfpenny stamp on the wrapper. And, still more astonishingly, he had made love to Lady Moira. They had stopped twice with the Moira's in Gloucestershire, and the Moira's had three times week ended with Mrs. Satisthwaite as the teacher's invitée titchens had made love to lady moira quite prettily and sufficiently to tide moira over until she was ready to begin her affair with sir william heathley for the matter of that sir john robertson the specialist in old furniture challenged by Lady Moira to pick holes in her beautiful house, had gone there, poked his large spectacles against cabinets, smelt the varnish of table-tops, and bitten the backs of chairs in his ancient and short-sighted way, and had then told Lady Moira that Teachins had bought her nothing that wasn't worth a bit more than he had given for it. This increased their respect for the old fellow. It explained his several millions. For if the old fellow proposed to make out of a friend like Myra a profit of 300%, limiting it to that out of sheer affection for a pretty woman, what wouldn't he make out of a natural and national enemy like a United States Senator? And the old man took a great fancy to Teachins himself, which Teachins to Sylvia's bewilderment did not resent. The old man would come in to tea, and if Teachins were present, would stay for hours talking about old furniture, Teachins would listen without talking. Sir john would expatiate over and over again about this to mrs Teachins. It was extraordinary. Teachins went purely by instinct, by taking a glance at a thing and chancing its price. According to Sir john, one of the most remarkable feats of the furniture trade had been Teachins' purchase of the Hemingway bureau for Lady Moira. Teechan's, in his dislikeful way, had bought this at a cottage sale for £3.10 shillings, and had told Lady Moira it was the best piece she would ever possess. Lady Moira had gone to the sale with him. Other dealers present had hardly looked at it. Teachin certainly hadn't opened it. But at Lady Moira's poking his spectacles into the upper part of the glazed piece, Sir John had put his nose straight on the little bit of inserted yellow wood by a hinge bearing signature name and date, JOHN HEMINGWAY, BATH, 1784. Sylvia remembered them because Sir John told her so often. It was a lost peace that the furnishing world had been after for many years. For that exploit the old man seemed to love teachins That he loved Sylvia herself she was quite aware. He fluttered round her tremulously, gave fantastic entertainments in her honour, and was the only man she had never turned down. He had a harem, so it was said, in an enormous house at Brighton or somewhere. But it was another sort of love he bestowed on teachings, the rather pathetic love that the aged bestow on their possible successors in office. Once Sir John came in to tea, and quite formally and with a sort of portentousness announced that that was his seventy-first birthday, and that he was a broken man, He seriously proposed that Tichens should come into partnership with him with the reversion of the business, not of course of his private fortune. Tichens had listened amiably, asking a detail or two of St John's proposed arrangement. Then he had said with a rather caressing voice that he now and then bestowed on a pretty woman that he didn't think it would do. There would be too much beastly money about it. As a career it would be more congenial to him than his office, but there was too much beastly money about it. Once more a little to Sylvia's surprise, but men are queer creatures, Sir John seemed to see this objection as quite reasonable, though he heard it with regret and combated it feebly. He went away with a relieved jointiness, for if he couldn't have teachings he couldn't, and he invited Sylvia to dine with him somewhere where they were going to have something fabulous and very nasty at about two guineas the ounce on the menu. Something like that. And during dinner Sir John had entertained her by singing the praises of her husband. He said that Teachins was much too great a gentleman to be wasted on the old furniture trade. That was why he hadn't persisted. But he sent by Sylvia a message to the effect that if ever Teachins did come to be in want of money... Occasionally Sylvia was worried to know why people, as they sometimes did, told her that her husband had great gifts. To her he was merely unaccountable. His actions and opinions seemed simply the products of caprice, like her own, and since she knew that most of her own manifestations were a matter of contrariety, she abandoned the habit of thinking much about him. But gradually and dimly she began to see that teachings had at least a consistency of character and a rather unusual knowledge of life. This came to her when she had to acknowledge that their move to the inn of court had been a social success and had suited herself. When they had discussed the change at Lobsheet, or rather when Sylvia had unconditionally given in to every stipulation of teachings, he had predicted almost exactly what would happen, though it had been the affair of her mother's cousin's opera box that had most impressed her. He had told her at Lobsheed that he had no intention of interfering with her social level, and he was convinced that he was not going to. He had thought about it a good deal. She hadn't much listened to him. She had thought, firstly, that he was a fool, and secondly, that he did mean to hurt her. And she acknowledged that he had a certain right. If, after she'd been off with another man, she asked this one still to extend to her the honour of his name and the shelter of his roof, she had no right to object to his terms. Her only decent revenge on him was to live afterwards with such equanimity as to let him know the mortification of failure. But at Lobsheety he had talked a lot of nonsense, as it had seemed to her, a mixture of prophecy and politics. The Chancellor of the Exchequer of that date had been putting pressure on the great landlords. The great landlords had been replying by cutting down their establishments and closing their townhouses, not to any great extent, but enough to make a very effective gesture of it, and so as to raise a considerable clamour from footmen and milliners. The Teachans, both of them, were of the great landowning class. They could adopt that gesture of shutting up their mayfair house and going to live in a wilderness, or the more if they made their wilderness a thoroughly comfortable affair. He had counselled her to present this aspect of the matter to her mother's cousin, the morosely portentous Rugley. Rugley was a great landowner, almost the greatest of all and he was a landowner obsessed with a sense of his duties both to his dependents and his even remote relatives. Sylvia had only, and said, to go to the Duke and tell him that the Chancellor's exactions had forced them to this move, and that they had done it partly as a protest, and the Duke would accept it almost as a personal tribute to himself. He couldn't even as a protest be expected to shut up Mexborough, or reduce his expenses, but if his humbler relatives spiritedly did, he would almost certainly make it up to them. And Rugley's favours were on the portentous scale of everything about him. I shouldn't wonder, Tichens had said, if he didn't lend you the Rugley box to entertain in. And that is exactly what had happened. The Duke, who must have kept a register of his remotest cousins, had shortly before their return to London heard that this young couple had parted with every prospect of a large and disagreeable scandal. He had approached Mrs Satterthwaite, for whom he had a gloomy affection, and he had been pleased to hear that the rumour was a gross libel. So that, when the young couple actually turned up again from Russia, Rugally, who perceived that they were not only together, but to all appearances quite united, was determined not only to make it up to them, but to show, in order to abash their libellers, as signal the mark of his favour as he could, without inconvenience to himself. He therefore twice, being a widower, invited Mrs. Satiswaite to entertain for him. Sylvia to invite the guests, and then had Mrs. Teachin's name placed on the roll of those who could have the Rugley box at the opera on application at the Rugley estate office when it wasn't wanted. This was a very great privilege, and Sylvia had known how to make the most of it. On the other hand, on the occasion of their conversation at Lobsheet, Teachins had prophesied what at the time seemed to her a lot of tosh, It had been two or three years before, but Teachins had said that, about the time grouse-shooting began in 1914, a European conflagration would take place which would shut up half the houses in Mayfair and beggar their inhabitants. He had patiently supported his prophecy with financial statistics as to the approaching bankruptcy of various European powers and the growingly acquisitive skill and rapacity of the inhabitants of Great Britain. She had listened to that with some attention. It had seemed to her rather like the usual nonsense talked in country houses, where, irritatingly, he never talked. But she liked to be able to have a picturesque fact or two with which to support herself when she, too, to hold attention, wanted to issue moving statements as to revolutions, anarchies and strife in the offing and she had noticed that when she magpied Tichin's conversations, more serious men in responsible positions were apt to argue with her and to pay her more attention than before. And now, walking along the table with her plate in her hand, she could not but acknowledge that, triumphantly and very comfortably for her, Tichin's had been right in the third year of the war it was very convenient to have a dwelling cheap comfortable almost august and so easy to work that you could have it a pinch run it with one maid though the faithful hollow central had not let it come to that yet being near titchin's she lifted her plate which contained two cold cutlets in aspic and several leaves of salad she wavered a little to one side and with a circular motion of her hand let the whole contents fly at titchin's head She placed the plate on the table and drifted slowly towards the enormous mirror over the fireplace. I'm bored, she said. Bored! Bored! End of Part 2, Chapter 1, Section 1